earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today and in this new year, wherever you are, in your car, elsewhere on your mobile device, listening with family or friends, catching the podcast. Well, friends, as we're on the cusp of a new year, I felt led to begin a series called Scrutinizing Scripture. Can we believe our Bible? Friends, it saddens my heart and actually brings a painful throb to my soul to observe over the years the increasing biblical illiteracy among the rank-and-file members of just about any given local church body. But nothing thrills my heart more than to see sisters and brothers in Christ thirst for the Word of God and desire to know it better and know it correctly. In my semi-retirement years, God has opened doors for me to enjoy the privilege of overseeing some disciple-making communities of adults, young people, and teens who meet at local restaurants, coffee shops, and a park to study and respect the Word of God on a deeper level, including reading and interpreting it properly and allowing it to transform the way we think and act in our daily lives. In this series, it's also my hope to lay to rest some of the unfortunate criticisms against the Bible that have been leveled at it either out of ignorance, misinformation, or sheer animosity. That's why I've chosen to begin part one with the Bible, the ultimate influencer for good. Friends, Socrates taught for 40 years. Aristotle also taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 50 years. But Jesus taught for only three years. Yet, the influence of Jesus Christ's three years of teaching infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who were among the greatest philosophers of antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci got their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music. Still Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, and oratorios composed in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth, 
That quote is anonymous, yet it's powerful, isn't it? And we must be careful, friends, that we don't divorce Jesus from his own cultural, social, and religious setting, a historical setting from which arose the most unique and remarkable anthology of writings in all human history. Galatians 4, 3, and 4 tell us, We, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, or basic principles of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, meaning the Mosaic law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Friends, this also appears in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Gleaning from their context, these two scriptures refer to a mindset, a pattern of thought, if you will, that is rooted in human-based philosophy and principles and human-based religious practices that stand in opposition to the divinely revealed word of God. There's even a hint that these human-based philosophical and religious systems are satanically and demonically inspired, particularly those that set themselves up against the true knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all ignorance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so, friends, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible paint a picture of a battle that is raging, now more ferociously than ever, a battle for the truth, a battle where truth is pit against error, and the battleground is our minds. This battleground has a long history, but it's epitomized in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 28 through 38. But before we get into the meat of this text, remember, the domino effect has already begun. The events that signal Jesus' death are near and happening in rapid succession. Judas has betrayed Jesus into the hands of Jewish and Roman authorities. Peter has denied he even knew Jesus. Jesus has now been brought before Pilate. And this is where we pick up the story. John eighteen twenty eight through 38. Jesus was brought into the praetorium. In other words, the governor's official residence. And they themselves, the Jewish leaders, did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate came out to them and said, What accusations are you bringing against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jewish leaders said, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This happened so that the word of Jesus which he said, indicating what kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Therefore Pilate entered the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, You are a king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own, or did others tell you about me? 
Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jewish leaders. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, What is truth? Friends, notice Jesus calmly and confidently declares that there is an objective absolute truth, and his mission is to bear witness or testify to this truth. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that everyone who is on the side of truth listens to his voice. We must read between the lines a little here and connect the dots. When we do, we realize that in these two statements, Jesus is actually claiming to be the truth. We could actually easily tag on to Jesus' last statement by adding to everyone who is on the side of truth, here's my voice, because I am the truth. Friends, truth is an important part of John's presentation of Jesus. The community of believers that John was shepherding were those who'd been expelled by the Jewish non-believers because they confessed Jesus as their Messiah. And now, as a separate and growing community, these Jewish believers in Jesus had to come to grips with defining just what it meant to confess Jesus as their promised Messiah and Savior. John, in his gospel, paints portraits of individuals and groups who represent various responses to Jesus, and in so doing, leads his readers to respond to Jesus' claims with trust and belief. And friends, through this process, John is also discipling those whom he is writing. John's community has elements of truth and understood aspects of Jesus' person and mission, like Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the wisdom teacher, Jesus the crucified Messiah, Jesus the divine revealer, and the future role of the Holy Spirit. John intended to paint a fuller picture of Jesus, who is truth. Only John uses the word truth 25 times in his gospel. And so through John we learn, God the Father is truth, John 1.14. Truth is realized in Jesus, 1.17. Worship must be in truth, 4.24. We can know the truth and it can set us free, 8.32. Jesus claimed to speak the truth, 845. Jesus declared he was truth incarnate, 14.6. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, 15.26. And God's word is truth, 17.17. 17. And guess what, friends? All this infuses meaning into the conversation between Jesus and Pilate in chapter 18. Some Bible teachers see two possible meanings behind Pilate's question, what is truth? First, the obvious meaning carries with it the idea that it is not easy to find truth. So what is truth? 
Second, there's the possibility that Pilate was jesting with Jesus, using his question as part of a bantering back and forth. So we might conclude, what does truth matter? But since neither of these interpretations contradict each other, I find it interesting that both questions typify today's modern society, don't they? What is truth and what does truth matter? Friends, back in 2009, author Paul Copan, theologian, philosopher, and apologist, wrote a book called True for You But Not for Me, Overcoming Objections to Christian Faith, a book certainly apropos for a generation that has grown up believing that truth is relative. In other words, truths don't have to exert demands on everyone. Each person can find the truth that works for them. Well, friends, I'd like to propose a way of looking at truth that originated in the 1994 book, Right from Wrong, by authors Josh McDowell and Bob Hostetler. Our hypothesis starts with the question, what is truth? The same question Pilate asked Jesus. Imagine for a moment two columns. The left column says, truth is relative, and the right column says, Truth is absolute. In other words, what if truth was absolute? As we proceed down the left column under truth is relevant, we like we list the statement true for you but not for me, which was the title of Paul Copan's book. This idea has been described over time by two ways of saying the same thing, moral relativism and situation ethics. Next, under the left column, we conclude that if truth is relative, there's no objective source. In other words, there's no objective source to test all other sources. Therefore, if truth is relative, then truth is subjective. And if truth is relative, and there's no objective source to test all other sources, then it follows that all opinions are equally valid. And sorry, folks, but the Bible beat us to it. In Judges 17.6 and 21.25, there's this curious but timeless statement. It's actually a conclusion. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It is believed Judges was written in the 11th century B.C., Now, friends, if all opinions are equally valid, then we must accept religious pluralism under the umbrella of inclusivism or tolerance. This naturally paves the way to there being many ways to God, and also many gods and many religions. Well, the natural byproduct of inclusivism and tolerance, both in life and in religion, is the fact that there's no single moral foundation. Which just brings us back to when I began outlining this chart on what is truth. In prior generations, it was called moral relativism or situation ethics. And the logical conclusion in this left column is this scenario is that truth is defined by the individual. Truth is subjective and situational. Now, friends, in the right column, as I shared, what if truth is absolute? Well, if truth is absolute, we have two possibilities. 
Truth is not discoverable, or truth is discoverable. And if truth is not discoverable, folks, the Bible has us beat again. For in 1 Corinthians 15.32, the Apostle Paul remarks that if there's no resurrection, then let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Which borrows from Isaiah 23.13 and from Proverbs 8.15, which says, So I commanded pleasure, for there is nothing good for a person under the sun except to eat, drink, and be joyful. Well, if truth is not discoverable, and we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die, there are two extreme responses. Antinomianism, which simply means indulge in everything, or asceticism, which simply means temperance. In other words, reigning in and suppressing our desires. And if truth is discoverable, there must be an objective source for everyone to discover. And we contend that the objective source of truth is the divine revelation of the Bible. And to the chagrin of many, unfortunately, the revelation of truth in the Bible leads us to the conclusion that there is religious exclusivity and the basis for a moral foundation. In other words, moral absolutes. Now, what gets people's hackles up is that religious exclusivity leads to intolerance, which can sound prideful and boastful that there is but one way to God and only one true God. But people don't understand that we're not intolerant of people but of belief systems. And this is where we offer dialogue regarding systems of belief and evaluating these systems found in the world. So, in this right column, what if truth is absolute? Our conclusion becomes, truth is defined by God for everyone. It is objective and absolute. Certain things are right for all people, all times, and all places. Well, friends, it's unfortunate that people in general, and even Christians, are guilty at times of having historical amnesia. The Roman historian Herodotus said, History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. So, friends, how about we wind down our time today by strolling down history lane and rediscovering how the Bible has actually been the ultimate influencer for good. Let's begin with some well-known people. John Ruskin, acknowledged master of English prose, lived from 1564 to 1660 and said, Whatever I have done in my life has simply been due to the fact that when I was a child, my mother daily read with me a part of the Bible and daily made me learn a part of it by heart. Daniel Webster, American lawyer and statesman, represented New Hampshire and Massachusetts in the U.S. Congress and served as U.S. Secretary of State under Presidents Harrison, Tyler, and Fillmore, said, If there be anything in my style of thought to be commended, the credit is due to my kind parents in instilling into my mind an early love of the scriptures. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. 
But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury our glory in profound obscurity. Matthew Arnold, English poet, essayist, and critic, who lived 1822 to 1888 and was a man far from orthodox beliefs and had little faith in the supernatural, said, As well imagine a man with a sense for sculpture, not cultivating it by the help of the remains of Greek art, and a man with a sense for poetry, not cultivating it by the help of Homer and Shakespeare, as a man with a sense for conduct, not cultivating it by the help of the Bible." Woodrow Wilson, one-time head of Princeton University and 28th President of the United States, said, The Bible is the word of life. I beg that you will read it and find out for yourself. Read not little snatches here and there, but long passages that will readily be the road to the heart of it. You will find it full of things you've had wondered about and been troubled about all your life. When you've read the Bible, you'll know it's the word of God because you'll have found in it the key to your own heart, your own happiness, and your own duty. Dr. William Lyon Phelps, professor of Yale University for 40 years, in his 1923 book, Human Nature and the Bible, said, Everyone who has a thorough knowledge of the Bible may truly be called educated. Western civilization is founded upon the Bible. Our ideas, our wisdom, our philosophy, our literature, our art, our ideals come more from the Bible than from any other books put together. It is a revelation of divinity and humanity. It contains the loftiest religious aspiration along with a candid representation of all that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. I thoroughly believe in a university education for both men and women, but I believe a knowledge of the Bible without a college course is more valuable than a college course without the Bible. For in the Bible we have profound thought beautifully expressed. We have the nature of boys and girls, of men and women, more accurately charted than in the words of any modern novelist or playwright. You can learn more about human nature by reading the Bible than by living in New York. Friends, the Bible has played a major role in determining the social values of the Western world. It's influenced many societies to adopt basic, important community virtues and to oppose many social vices. Here's some areas. The family. Modern society has largely ignored biblical teachings about the family, and consequently the family has suffered. Jesus upheld the dignity and equality of women in his teachings and dealings with women. Jesus held children in the highest esteem. Recall other cultures with bigamy, wives as property, discarding daughters at birth because of wanting a son. Take employer-employee relations. In history, the pendulum has swung back and forth between owners and workers. They've been masters and slaves, merchants and buyers, landowners and serfs, employers and employees. A long history of persecution and victimization. The Bible, however, stops this pendulum with the golden rule. 
How about discrimination? Scripture lays discrimination to rest. America's founding fathers believed all people were created equal in God's eyes. Recall the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 or James 2 in not showing partiality. The Bible establishes the equality of all. It's a sin to treat anyone otherwise. Take crime and punishment. What is lawful and unlawful in America is highly influenced by the Bible. Killing, stealing, lying, and cheating are all against the law, influenced by the Ten Commandments. True, the Bible has been wrongly stereotyped by thinking it promotes intolerance, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, but many of our social ills would be solved if we follow the Bible properly interpreted. Friends, I could go on with humanitarianism, government, education, art, music, literature. You see, friends, if our greatest need was information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need was technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need was money, God would have sent an economist or banker if our greatest need was entertainment god would have sent a comedian or artist if our greatest need was political stability god would have sent a politician if our greatest need was health god would have sent a doctor if the world needed an army god would have sent a general but our greatest need was forgiveness of sin our alienation from god our rebellion so God sent a Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. If a word from the Word has blessed you or illuminated God's Word, please consider becoming a support team member. It's listeners that help keep this program on the air. Thanks for listening today, friends, and remember Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 